Welcome to Forest Heights Baptist Church this morning. Uh, we're going to start off with our mission, or Annie Armstrong missions video, so please enjoy. All of this story coming together just had God written all over it. Nampa First Southern Baptist Church was, was planted in the 50s. Some faithful folks were here saying we, need, we want to have a, a gospel-centered presence here. So this neighborhood you know, kind of grew up around the church. And then the city grew beyond and, and the church had to either adjust or not adjust to the changing environment around them. And so the folks that were left were the ones saying, how do you preach a resurrected Christ with a dying church? We heard about it, the plight of this church, and we packed it all up, me, my wife, my four kids, and, and headed for Idaho. Replanting takes the idea of, of church planting and puts it inside the, the housing of, of existing resources. We're planting not brand new in a brand new setting, but we're building upon the legacy of what was here. And so for us, um, preparing for a launch was a chance to kind of reintroduce ourselves to the community. We, we wanted to take full advantage of that. So it was flyers downtown and it was mailers to the community and it was getting out here to say this new church right here in this old context. And so, um, you know, when, when we launched in February of 2017, imagine a church that has been, you know, 30, 35 people maybe on a Sunday to have 130 people show up in your sanctuary. I mean, those of us who'd been here through that process are looking around like, where'd these people come from? So. Does it matter that this church is still here and hasn't been given up on? Yeah, it does because the watching community now knows, yes, Jesus is alive because he can even resurrect a church from the edge of, of really closing its doors. So that's what we've been able to do because of the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. It's a gospel story baked into the story of this church and in, in our lives. encourages you as much as it did me. I know a lot of times we look at um, the number of people at our church and we get a little discouraged. Um, but, you know, God can use any number of us to uh, spread his word. And I think that's what's so exciting. I'd never even heard of this idea of replanting a church until this, uh, this week. And um, it was so encouraging to see that was an idea that, that was being used um, by the North American Mission Board, not just planting, but replanting and using what was already there, um, already a part of the, the culture and the community, and just re-reaching out and saying, hey, we haven't forgotten about you. We're still here. We want to reach you uh, where you are. And, I, you know, that's, that's a great uh, encouragement for us and something that we should be considering, too, as we're in this growing process and in this, this uh, new um, sort of interim stage of life, as it were. Do I end it there? Um, so as of right now, I'm not including what was collected this morning, um, we have $3,350. Go ahead and give it up. That's over halfway to $6,000. Um, I have been asked to remind you, if you're writing checks, to make the checkouts to the church, not to Annie Armstrong, to the church. At the end, we'll just write one giant check. Yes, I did say giant. Not in size, but in amount, DJ. Amount. 
Um, so just make your checks out to the church. Um, reminder, envelopes are in the back, or you don't need an envelope. It's totally fine. Whatever you want to do, just keep on giving uh, prayerfully and sacrificially and on top of your tithe, not in your tithe handout. Um, this week is your prayer week. So if you didn't pick up one of these last week, make sure you grab one in the back. Um, in the back, back. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, switching gears to Operation Christmas Child, it is a new month, which means we're collecting new things. We are collecting wow items, which is basically anything that if you open a box and was like, whoa, that's awesome, that's a wow item. So soccer balls, um, toys, like dolls, or um, teddy bears, or stuff to stuff, whatever, I don't know. Um, if you're not sure, like I clearly am not, you can pick up one of these handy-dandy flyers also in the back. Please don't throw this one away, though, because we have a limited supply because they're from last year, and we need them for later when we actually pack the boxes. But in the middle here, you'll see all these <laughs> gift suggestions, which you can use. This list is also available on the internet. So, Google. A. I think that's it for me. Daniel, hit it. All right. Uh, just a couple other announcements. Uh, you'll notice that, uh, obviously, we have bulletins that you can pick up on your way in, um, as well as in the front of your seat. You should see some visitor's cards. And also, on the back side of that, it's also for prayer. So if you have a prayer request before Wednesday or, where, or whenever you want to make that, please fill that out. You can put those in the offering plates or hand it to me or your deacons, and that would be wonderful. If you will, let's stand up and sing, How Great Thou Art. Thou art, 
during this uh, transitional time for a few weeks. And I am the Director of Missions for the Sarepta Baptist Association. That's a organization network of 75 churches in eight different counties. And uh, we all work together to do missions. And matter of fact, uh, since this is a week of prayer for North American missions, one of the things I did this morning early is I took the uh, uh, information about the guy who we're a couple we're going to be praying for today and I sent it out to all of our pastors posted it on Facebook and we'll do so every day this week because believe it or not pastors have to be reminded sometimes to pray and, and uh, I try to be that uh, prodder of, of people to pray and so I hope you'll be using this time to to pray also for them and um, the couple we're looking at today is Shahid and Marufa Kamal, and they're in uh, British Columbia. They're working with Asians there, 
says there's over 300,000 Asians in uh, British Columbia. And uh, I, I remember when we were missionaries in Singapore many years ago that uh, they told us then that one of the largest uh, Singaporean populations in North America was in British Columbia, which uh, uh, that was kind of startling to me, go from the equator to British Columbia. That's a shock to your system, to say the least. But uh, we want to pray for them. Two items of prayer for them they've requested. For the church's prayer ministry to continue to open doors for the gospel. And secondly, for South Asians in Surrey to be drawn toward Jesus. And so uh, let's uh, spend some time in prayer today. Also remembering the search committee as they begin in earnest some of their work. They've got some very important decisions to make in the next few uh, uh, weeks. And so I hope you will be praying for them on a daily basis. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you today to lift up our, our missionary couple today, Shahid and Marufa Kamal, and praying for their work in British Columbia, specifically praying for their prayer ministry to be effective, and also for the Asians to be uh, drawn to their work and ministry. Lord, your word tells us if Christ, if, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. And that's the words of Jesus. And so I pray that as they lift up the name of Jesus, Lord, that they would see uh, that, that, uh, that drawing power of the cross. We pray for them, pray for their finances, pray for their family, pray for their health. Pray, Lord, for the effect of, this, of their ministry and starting this, uh, their, their work there. And uh, just pray, God, that you would be effective in, in using them for the gospel. Lift up our search committee today and pray, God, for their wisdom and discernment, especially as they begin to pull together the transition team to work with the uh, uh, transitional interim pastor. Lord God, give them wisdom and discernment. Lord, give them a, a level of commitment that uh, shows that they fully, fully are committed to this whole process of discovering who you would have to be the next pastor at Forest Heights. So, Lord, I pray that today during the worship time that you would impact our lives with your word. Lord, that we would come from many different places uh, to uh, hear the word. But, Lord, that we would walk out of here knowing that we have received a, a word from you today that will challenge our lives. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And as a uh, uh, heads up for tomorrow, the couple you're going to be praying for is from Avondale Estates. So it's not just missionaries way off, it's also missionaries going to be working with people here. So pray for them. And just so you know, we'll be updating y'all as well during this week of prayer uh, through Facebook, through email, um, just so you can have the chance to pray for these during this week. Uh, let's continue our service by singing Jesus Saves. Sing 
stand we'll finish by singing for the cause
want to mention a couple of personal matters. Uh, one is a few weeks back, I think, when we started talking about the North American missions, I mentioned I have a, a nephew who is uh, planting a church in Detroit, Michigan. And today is their launch day. So be praying for them. They were hoping to launch last fall. And if you can imagine this, COVID had some impact on that. So um, be, be praying for that. I come from, or uh, let me just say, I married into a missions family. My wife's aunt and uncle were missionaries in Indonesia for 37 years, I think it was, close to that. Uh, my uh, father-in-law and mother-in-law were both missionaries in uh, uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, where they planted a church back in the early 60s. The last 10 years of their active ministry and full-time ministry was spent as pastoring in International Baptist Church in Munich, Germany. My brother-in-law has been a missionary in the Detroit area, and, uh, and Pam and I were also missionaries. So uh, we, we're excited about, uh, and so pray for Philip and Catherine Box. Philip and Catherine Box. Not a hard name to remember, just Box. Pretty simple. I'll not be with you next Sunday, and uh, there's a very good reason for that. I have a granddaughter who is going to be baptized next Sunday, and guess who's going to get to do that? Me. This will be my third grandchild who baptized, so we are excited about little Ava and her commitment to the Lord. Uh, let me just tell you something. Uh, this is a grandparent unbiased opinion, <laughs> but you have not heard a child pray till you've heard my granddaughter pray. I am telling you, she prays a prayer that will bring the stars down every night. When we, I mean, I, I, I've always said I need to take my phone in there and record it. Uh, it it's just uh, incredible. So when she came to know the Lord uh, back earlier, part of this year, she sent me a little picture, said a little, little sign said, uh, I trusted Jesus today. And so uh, we are thrilled with that. So that's half of my six grandkids that, we've, we've, that I've baptized, so I am praying for all of them. Uh, I started praying for their salvation the day they were born, and I've started been praying for their mates. I pray for their kids and their grandkids. I think there's a, I don't think you can start too soon praying for those, even though they're not even in existence yet. So um, anyway. Uh, today I want you to uh, turn with me to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. We're going to be talking in terms of the strategy for spiritual warfare. During a time of interim, there is a real dynamic that takes place in the life of a church. Uh, I, th I think it's there all the time, but it's accentuated more during the interim time than any other time, and that's spiritual warfare. I went back and did a little study myself. I thought, well, I wonder how often we get into wars. So I went looking back into a, a, a document I read earlier this week and come to find out there's been 11 major wars that the United States, if you count the Revolutionary War, all the way to today, there's been 11 wars. The Revolutionary War, War of 1812, Mexican-American War, American Civil War, Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the uh, Gulf War, and now the war in Afghanistan that we've been in for 20 years. Uh, most of these countries and most of these conflicts have to do with boundaries and armies that actually wear uniforms. They have formalized training. They usually represent some either government or some uh, 
dictator as we uh, dealt with various issues. However, there is one war that is missing on that list that has played a prominent role in our in, in the last 30 years at least in the life of our country, and that's called the war on terrorism. Uh, there's something unique about the war on terrorism in that, that all those qualities and characteristics I named that were most of our enemies of days gone by and conflicts gone by, none of those apply. They don't come in uniforms. They don't represent a country necessarily. In most cases, they don't. Um, they don't have uh, any uh, recognizable uh, army that's going to be advancing and they, they're not, not going to be front lines they're just as likely to be living next door to you as, uh, as any place else. War on terror. Uh, it's an enemy that literally could live anywhere around us. As we consider our warfare, and in that I'm speaking of spiritual warfare, it's not unlike terrorists in many ways. We face our enemy. Our enemy has no uniform. Our enemy has no boundaries. Our enemy has no government. Our enemy, however, is cunning and invisible. Our enemy is deceptive and powerful. Our enemy creates confusion and division. Our enemy is ready to do battle every day. Every day. I remember back in 9-11, there was a statement made, and I thought, boy, you know, that is absolutely right. And here was the statement I read. The terrorists have been at war with us long before we were at war with them. And I thought to myself, you know, that could be said of Christians in regards to our enemy, the devil. He's been at war with you long before you realized that there was even a war uh, going on. In 2 Timothy, excuse me, 2 Corinthians, rather, uh, the Apostle Paul is dealing with warfare. I believe we can learn something from his confrontation with his enemies that apply to us today as we face this. Now, now, the Corinthian church, by all, uh, all uh, accounts, was not a stellar church. <laughs> the Corinthian church has had uh, been a reputation of having a lot of problems. Matter of fact, we, I, I've heard it said by others, why would any church want to take on that name and call themselves that? Now, we have one in our association, and that is no downput for them because they do a great and mighty work, but they had problems. Paul specifically had some problems he was dealing with and false teachers and those who were around them influencing the believers at the church at Corinth. Here were some accusations that had been leveled against him. They said that Paul, when you were meeting with him face to face, could be rather condescending. Rather condescending. Some said that, they were, that he was acting from impure motives when he was leading them. It is even said that his personal appearance was not pleasant wow they're tough tough people they said his speaking ability was poor they even said that the only reason he was preaching was because of money now in second uh, corinthians chapter 10 paul addresses his own credentials in the first couple of verses we'll not take time to go there today but then he gets down to what the this four-year-old church that Paul planted on his second missionary journey and spent a significant amount of time there, he's trying to address to them in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6 in the passage we're going to look at today. 
Scripture says this in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For the pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Four things I think Paul brings to our awareness. Some of this they probably already knew, but Paul says you're acting like you don't know, so I'm going to remind you of some things. And so I think we can learn from that also. First thing is this, discover the realm of the warfare. Discover the realm of the warfare. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. He's telling them our battle, yes, we, we are flesh and blood. Yes, we live our lives day in and day, day out. When he uses the term walk, he's talking about every facet of our life. He's talking about our moral behavior, our ethical behavior, our religious behavior. He acknowledges we're walking and living our lives as flesh and blood. That is not where our battle is. The realm is not in the physical. The realm is in the spiritual. He says we do not war against uh, according to the flesh. Now this term war he uses is one that's not talking about a little skirmish. He's not talking about some guerrilla activity taking place in a certain, certain remote area. He's talking about a, a military campaign. This would be the picture of an, an all-out war taking place that has with it the idea of longevity. This is an ongoing conflict that we have. He says this kind of war is not in the flesh. This same idea that Paul is communicating here, he did so in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, when he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. It speaks of the, to the nature of the battle. The realm in which you are going to be doing battle and I'm going to be doing battle is in the spiritual realm, not the physical realm. In conventional warfare, it's all about taking territories, taking towns, taking cities, expanding your borders. But one of the things we discovered as we began to have this war on terrorism is we started initially by trying to use conventional tactics and warfare against them. But we had to learn. Our enemy is different. They, they operate different. They, they function differently. But, but one thing they understood and have tried to do the best, as I understand it is, they try to choke it out by cutting off their finances if, as much as possible by doing so it renders them powerless in a very real sense the realm in which we do battle is no different than paul's day we don't war against the flesh in the realm in which we battle it is a spiritual battle it is a battle that in which we must be prepared to face our enemy every day if the realm is spiritual each individual must get prepared just because your pastor is prepared does not mean you're prepared. Just because your spouse is prepared does not mean you 
are prepared. Just because your parents are prepared does not mean you are prepared. It's a personal preparation that must take place. James 4.1 gives us a hint of where this conflict comes from. He says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? It's internally. And so Paul is conveying here, we must discover the realm of the warfare. Secondly, in this passage, he says we need to learn to deploy the resources for the warfare. Verse 4 says this, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That's the word for fleshly, physical. They're not carnal, but mighty in God. So Paul is not only saying, listen, our, our realm of battle is not the flesh, it's in the spirit. Our weapons are not of the flesh. They're, they're not finite weapons that we're dealing with. You see, carnal weapons are not spiritual. They belong to the physical realm. They're man-made weapons. They're made out of human resources. Carnal weapons are made with human ingenuity. Carnal weapons attack people. Carnal weapons attack places. Carnal weapons attack powers. But Paul says those aren't our weapons. Those aren't the things we ought to do and are not going to be effective. He says our weapons are infinite. He says they are mighty in God. You see, our weapons spiritually are made by an infinite God. Our weapons are provided by our infinite God. Our weapons are designed by our infinite God. Our weapons are infinitely powerful. Our weapons are infinitely effective. Our weapons are infinitely victorious. But oh, how many times our conflicts are centered around physical things. <laughs> Crazy. Think back with me to Matthew chapter 4. There's an encounter that Jesus has, the detailed encounter of the time after he was baptized. And he went out into the wilderness for 40 days and he fasted and prayed. And, and then he had a personal encounter with the devil. Personal encounter with the devil. And here's what I want you to see out of this. Notice the approach that the enemy tried to use in attacking Jesus. Every one of the appeals that Satan made to him had a physical attraction to it. For instance, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, Now when the tempter came to him, speaking of Jesus, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Physical bread. Now, I like bread. <laughs> I think that's the only amen I've gotten since I've been here. I can't imagine how much I would like bread if I had not eaten anything in 40 days. So the appeal of the enemy was to his senses, to his physical, and Jesus' response was, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus quoted out of the book of Deuteronomy. He used scripture to fend off the evil one. 
because Jesus was referring to the spiritual realm. The second temptation had to do with the physical miracle. Verse 5 says, Then the devil took him up to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And here's the devil quoting scripture. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus, man, you're going to wow the people. If from the temple you jump off and the angels catch you and they see this physical miracle, you're going to wow the crowd. Jesus' response was also from Deuteronomy, thou shalt not tempt the Lord. The third also had a physical appeal to it because it was an appeal to rule this physical world. Verse 8 says, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things, physical things, I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord God and serve him only. A third quote from the book of Deuteronomy. Each time it was not Jesus' physical strength that fended off the devil. Each time it was the power of the word of God to defeat the enemy. You know, if Jesus took that approach, do you think we might could take that same approach ourselves and learn from it? You see, we are not adequately prepared for warfare by our own wisdom. We're not adequately prepared for warfare with our own strength. We're not adequately prepared for warfare with our own righteousness. Adequate weapons for this warfare come from God. We need to deploy the resources for this warfare. And they come from God. They're mighty to God. The third thing Paul tells us here is we need to destroy the ramparts of warfare. To destroy the ramparts of warfare, verses, latter part of verse 4 and into verse 5, pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now a rampart is a protective barrier, a defensive wall like around a castle or a city. It is taken from a French word meaning to fortify and take possession of again. Believe me, if you've been walking the Christian life for any period of time, the enemy will make efforts to establish strongholds in your life. He will try to build ramparts around those areas of your life that he wants to remain in control of. Rampart number one is entrenchment. Paul uses the word stronghold. It's the idea of a fortress or a prison. It's the only time this particular word stronghold occurs in the whole Bible. In this case, a stronghold of false teaching had occurred in Corinth. Rampart number two is expressions. First was entrenchment, second one is expressions. Paul uses the term arguments. The word arguments can be defined as reasonings or imagination. It's even used in in, uh, mathematical terminology to talk about a calculation. 
Thoughts that express a person's own purpose and determination to live after their own pleasure. And what does he say we do with those? Cast them down. So we're to pull down strongholds. We're to cast down these uh, arguments. And the third thing he mentions here is, is exaltation. Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It is not so much that it is a high thing. It is that there are those elements in our world that would say our own knowledge is higher than God's. I mean, we, we live in a culture that says that. You start quoting Bible verses to people and they kind of go, yawn, yawn, yawn. You know, you poor primitive person that doesn't know any better. Little do they know those high Thoughts are going to be torn down. Destroying the ramparts of warfare, those entrenchments, those expressions, those things that are exalted, we need to tear them down. It's also always been a fascination to me to watch. I've never seen one in person, but to watch buildings get imploded. It's incredible. I mean, there's obviously a lot of skill involved in that. Y'all, y'all maybe remember back to uh, November 2017. Uh, the Georgia Dome was imploded. Now, I, I get the feeling old because I remember I went to a football game the first year. It was in existence, and now it's gone. Why does that make you feel bad? But one of the most humorous things that happened was the Weather Channel uh, uh, depiction of it. They had a camera set, had a wonderful view of the, of the Georgia Dome, and they had a countdown that was taking place. And if you watch it on, on, on YouTube or something like that, you, you hear them, they're counting it down. Ten, nine, eight, they get about to five, and you see in the peripheral a city bus pulling right in front of the camera, and then the implosion takes place. In the YouTube video I listened to, there were several bleeps on the part of the person hoping to get this wonderful picture. <laughs> all you could see was dust over the bus. And when all was said and done, the bus pulls away and all you see is this cloud of debris. Let me ask you this question. How much of that building did they intend to leave standing? None of it. Did they have intentions of possibly, well, maybe we'll put all this back together again once it's all blown up? No. When you implode something, you're wanting to get something really big that's an obstacle to your future progress blown up out of the way. Unfortunately, in the Christian life, when we start tearing things down, especially those areas that Satan has built a stronghold in our life, we don't want to utterly destroy it. We just want to do damage enough so that it looks a little bit uh, like we've attempted to do something, but uh, lo and behold, he starts building back the next day. You ever notice that? Peter said in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the souls. 
when it comes to strongholds in our life, the enemy has any number of those that he may try to draw upon. They're not all equal in all of our lives. The stronghold of money and power, the stronghold of greed, the stronghold of pornography, of alcohol and drugs, the stronghold of gossip. Even the family can become a stronghold if they do not accomplish God's purpose in your life. The stronghold of hobbies, the stronghold of sports, the stronghold of politics, the stronghold of disobedience. We say, Lord, I don't like these things in my life, and I want to kind of sort of a little bit implode them, but don't take them away completely because I really like some of them. Those speculations or reasonings that come that need to be torn down also are human logic sometimes, human abilities, human calculations. They try to put the human mathematical scale on God and it simply does not work. And when it comes to exalting these forms of man's wisdom, they, they exalt human's wisdom, they exalt human's creativity, they, they exalt human's abilities and our values and totally ignore God's. What I hope you get out of this picture is our battle is in the spiritual realm. It's weapons are of God's origin to us. There are things that need to be taken down. And the final thing that Paul tells us here in this passage of Scripture is we need to develop the response for warfare. He says this in the latter part of verse 5. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Bringing every thought into captivity according to the obedience of Christ. That can be captured in two kind of phrases here. One, we need to trap every thought. He says, bring every thought into captivity. That's the idea of like you're a hunter and you're spearing something. Or in battle you capture a, a, a city or you subdue your enemy, bringing everything into captivity. You see, false teachers in, in Paul's domain there at the church at Corinth had captured their thoughts. He says, listen, there needs to be something done about that. You need to capture every thought. Any sinful action must first take place through the thought processes in our mind. And any thought that is not captured has the ability to contaminate the mind. Any thought that is not anchored in the truth of God can contaminate our mind. We need to trap every thought. But he also says we need to transform every action to the obedience of Christ. If your thoughts are captured, then obedience is highly probable, much more so than otherwise. Failure to have thoughts captured leads to disobedience. Spiritual warfare is all about who has captured your thoughts. Who has captured your thoughts? You may recall the story in Acts chapter 5 of a couple who started out with a Great, great idea. There were some needs that had arisen in the early church, and they decided, along with many other believers, we're going to sell some property. Now, what's wrong with that? Nothing. And we're going to give it 
to the apostles. Now, what's wrong with that? Nothing. But every thought had not been brought captive. <laughs> Isn't it incredible how Satan is so subtle in his ways of dealing with us? Oh, yeah, you can take step number one. I'll even let you take step number two. Both those steps are fine and dandy. But step number three, whoa, look out. The couple's name was Ananias and Sapphira. They made a decision regarding the sale of property. They did not bring every thought captive. They decided, who will know the difference? How many times has that gotten you in trouble? Hmm? How many times is thinking, who will know the difference? Has it ever gotten you in trouble? That's what they were thinking. It didn't say it in Scripture, but that's what they were thinking. Who, who's going to know how much our property was worth? And so they decided to keep back for themselves. That doesn't necessarily indicate that uh, one did it or the other did it. They did it collectively as a couple. They did not bring all their thoughts captive in what was intended to be a good and godly thing is now contaminated. Here's what was said to Ananias. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Your mind is what he's talking about. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back a part of the price of the land for yourself? I, I bet in his mind he goes, who told you? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to me, but to God. One of those old lessons that comes back to, we see it time and time again, and not only in our own pilgrimage with God, but also depicted all throughout Scripture, and that is partial obedience is still disobedience. Every thought is captured when you guard your minds from evil, wicked, and vulgar things. The world says, oh, that's just reality. Well, dog poo-poo is reality, and I don't want to think about that a whole lot. Don't want it in my house. Don't want it in my car. Don't want it on my shoes. What a bogus thing to say. Things that are not true, things that are gossip, things that are tear people down instead of build people up. Those things contaminate your thoughts and in indicates your thoughts have not been brought into captivity. Every thought is captured when you fill your mind with the things that are pleasing to God. Paul gives us a hint of just what that might be in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, think on these things. Meditate on these things. Bring every thought captive. 
Think how many victories you would have had in your spiritual walk if that one statement had been realized, bringing every thought captive. With thoughts captive, captured God's, for God's use, obedience is possible. Make a conscious effort to allow God to determine how to capture every thought. Romans chapter 6 Verse 12, Paul writes these words, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey in it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Peter writes these words in 1 Peter 4, 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, and he who no longer should live to the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. When thoughts are brought captive, we accomplish God's will. You know, we are currently at war with another invisible enemy, or so they call it that, and have for the last year, COVID-19. Very deadly. Over 500,000 people dead in our nation alone, not to mention those around the world. It's quite puzzling to me that there are some who would, in spite of all of those who have died from it, either think that it's a hoax or believe it will not impact them, and they disregard any measures to protect themselves. This invisible enemy can infiltrate virtually any place and impact any person. I mean, let's face it, the former president of the United States had it. (laughs) I think there were plenty of safeguards around him. There is, to me, a striking parallel to the COVID enemy as it relates to the similar attitude reflected by people in regards to sin and Satan. Many don't believe that sin is deadly and that Satan is real or that spiritual warfare has any significance in their life. Arrogantly, people will think it will not impact them, but unlike COVID virus, sin has infected all of us. And unlike COVID virus, there is no immunization for us so that sin no longer has an impact on us. And unlike COVID, there is one who is willing to take on your sin and mine so that we don't have to deal with it at all. And that's Jesus. He took it on himself. He paid the price. How difficult is it for us then to allow him to have captive of every thought that we have? We're in spiritual warfare. And the enemy would have you believe that those little decisions that you make that nobody else knows about is no big deal. And I'm here to tell you, go back and read the children of Israel as they entered into the land of promise 
and asked the guy Aiken if there was any problem with just trying to get by with a little deception that nobody else knows about. One thing that I discovered a very long time ago, and that is this, we do not, we do not, and we never can sin in isolation. Our sin always impacts others. Always. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for not leaving us to battle on our own and our own strength and our own abilities. But Lord, thank you for giving us the power of the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. Thank you for the spiritual weapons that you've provided that are from your design and from your resources. Father, help us to tear down those things in our life that have become strongholds for the enemy. And Lord, help us to bring every captive thought unto you. And Lord, as I pray at this time, I pray for this church collectively, Lord, that during this interim time, as the enemy tries to gain inroads into this congregation, Lord, that you would have people here who are spiritually prepared for battle. That they will not become victims of the enemy, but victors over the enemy. And Lord, you know where that begins. It begins in the hearts of every believer who's here. That we might desire to serve you and follow you faithfully. Lord Jesus, during this time of invitation and commitment, I, on your behalf, extend an invitation to come to know Christ as Savior and Lord. To recommit lives to a closer walk with you so that every thought is brought captive. Lord, as a commitment to do your will as much as possible in your church, collectively. Father, glorify yourself during this time, that your name might be high and lifted up, that your word would not return to you void without accomplishing its purpose. Accomplish your purpose during this time in Jesus' name. Amen. I will be here at the front to receive you if you have a decision that needs to be made. If you ever need to trust Christ as Lord and Savior, I invite you to come and make that commitment today. If you're looking for a church home and this is the place God is leading you to, come. If you want to make this an altar of prayer, do so right now. As we stand together, as we sing, you come. This Savior and Lord of my life, my hope, my glory, my hope. Master and joy and in strive on him you too may call. Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is Lord of all. Lord of my thoughts and my service. Each day, Jesus.
seated for just a minute. I'm going to let uh, hand this off to Tim for just a quick announcement. Uh, I'm representing the pastor search team and I just wanted to fill you in on where we are. Um, we have called Danny Hedgepath to be our transition pastor. The, he'll be our long-term interim pastor, not our permanent pastor. And he knows that he won't be the permanent pastor, and he's already said, no, I don't want to be the permanent pastor. So, but we, from all the experience we have from everybody we talk to, it's going to take us a while to find a pastor. And so there's a program that Lex has already given us all the insight to the other Sunday night. Uh, about long-term interim pastors, the transition. And so Danny is very experienced in that. He's been trained in it. Uh, and so we've called him to, he'll start on April the 11th, which is the Sunday after Easter. Now he's going to be here next Sunday and preach because Lex, as he's already told us, is going to baptize his granddaughter. So you'll have a chance to hear him. There is no protocol in our bylaws for a long-term interim pastor, all right? We feel as five people trying to do God's will that this is the best approach we can take, bridging that gap between Mike Purdy and whoever God has out there for us. Folks, God is... Uh, a God of order and this pastor that will eventually come to us God's not going to just snatch him out of the situation he's in right now and leave a, a bunch of people disorganized right God is going to speak to him and when it's the right time he'll come to us all right and, or we'll find him whichever way God wants to work it okay but in the meantime we're going to be transitioning to that pastor. Um, once we have a candidate for permanent pastor, then we'll definitely follow the protocol in the bylaws for a permanent pastor. Uh, I promise you that. But I just wanted to let you know where we're going right now and, uh, and, and how we're, what, we've, what we've done. Lex is very familiar with Danny. He's also familiar with the people that we had interviewed besides Danny. And 
we questioned Lex last Sunday. So uh, he didn't make the decision for us. We made the decision, the five of us. And it was unanimous, the five of us. So that's where we stand. Uh, I ask you to continue to pray for us. If you don't, shame on you. That's all I can say. And I'd like, just as a side note, I'd like you to pray for Mike Purdy. Mike Purdy's, I think, having a hard time making transition. Uh, and he, he need, really needs our prayer and our support. Uh, I can under, totally understand, you know, making a transition after retirement. I'm about to stumble into that myself. Uh, but I think even it's, it's harder as a pastor, I think, especially one that's been 24 years pastoring a church. So just remember him. And thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. And just a couple other announcements. Um, we do have our family night supper this Wednesday. I believe the menu should the menu is in our bulletin. It is six o'clock. The time is correct this time. Um, if you haven't signed up already, it is in the back in the foyer. Um, but also, you can contact the church office if you haven't signed up. You know, and you want to, I'll go ahead and use uh, Tim's phrase, "Shame on you." But no. Uh, thank you so much for uh, going ahead and signing up for that. Um, anything else? Oh, Donna. Thank you, John. Um, let's all stand and sing, He Who Began a Good Work in You. He who began a good work in you. He who began a good work in you. Will be faithful to complete it. He'll be faithful to complete it. He who started the work will be faithful to complete it in you. 